Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Wade Arnold, CEO and founder of Move, an embedded payments platform that's raised $77.5 million in funding. Wade, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Not a problem at all, and super excited for our conversation. So I'd love to just begin here with a little bit more about your background, your journey, and what you were doing before starting the company. Absolutely. So I've been in financial services since I worked at a company, Macromedia. We were bought by Adobe, and in Adobe, uh, I helped pre-populate loan applications inside of Acrobat Reader. And so I, w- I was on the kind of flash team and helped connect that. And that transferred into starting a company, Bano, which was a digital banking company that sold to Jack Henry in 2014, uh, helped start a company, Bilgo, uh, which is a modern bill pay platform. And really all those experiences led me to creating Move because I was so frustrated building on top of, you know, the legacy infrastructure that was designed you know, before the internet, before the cloud, before mobile, before all these technologies that we take for granted. That's awesome. A few things that we like to ask, and the, the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You know, for me, I've always loved the writing of Ben Horowitz, which when Andreessen Horowitz uh, led our Series A, made for a really hard negotiation in that I was going to say yes, no matter what, because uh he was kind of this thought leader from afar, from his writing and his books. And um, I think it's really interesting how he promotes company culture first and foremost. That's really what he writes about. And so for me, I think being a second time founder, you know, this time around, I'm really a lot more focused on on the culture of the organization versus simply, you know, what product do we bring to market? Yeah, I love Ben Horowitz. He's so fascinating. What about books? Outside of anything written by Ben Horowitz, what would you say has had the, the greatest impact on you? Not really as a founder, but just as a as a human. Yeah. So, you know, I love like Clayton Christensen and, and Steve Blank, but um, I continue to reread Tim O'Reilly's, you know, What's the Future? Why It's Up to Us. And I think I grew up kind of in this open source revolution. And that book for me it's almost like a history lesson of, of a life that I got to live. I'm, I just turned 45 last week and, and got to grow up in, in this kind of dot-com, you know, internet revolution. And so for me, I think a lot of the principles that he lays out in that book, I resonate with, and, and it's the, you know, type of human that I want to be and type of entrepreneur that I want to be. Super interesting. That's, I've not read that book yet. Should I add it to my list? I would add it to your list. I think it's good to find something that challenges you. And sometimes there's books that, you know, the context that you bring into reading it changes what you get out of it. And for me, those are the best books that you can kind of reread and it's more applicable to the current stage of your life rather than, you know, just a book on, you know, CICD pipelines. Like that book's old as soon as it's written. (laughs) 
Yeah, I have several books that I like to read on a regular basis. And my favorite thing to do is to, you know, I, I try to use like a different color highlighter so I can go back and say, okay, three years ago, I read this book and, you know, these things were important to me. I highlighted them. They're in orange. You go back and read it again. And, you know, you're highlighting completely different stuff because like you said, kind of like that context has changed. The problem you're trying to solve when rereading the book has changed. So I'm a big fan of just going back to them and, and reading some of these books over and over again. And you seem to get something different every single time you read it. Yeah. And I think that that's an incredible author when when that's applicable, when when your context changes the outcome of reading the book. Yeah, 100% agree. Now let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to start this part of the interview is really talking about the problem you solve. So at a very high level, what problem do you solve? Yeah, so Move allows software engineers or SaaS companies to accept, store, send, and spend money uh, in the United States. And that problem hasn't been solved by anyone. It's normally relegated maybe to a bank, um, maybe a bunch of different vendors that do those different pieces. And uh, really the founding story and and kind of how we got after this is, you know, if every company is going to become a software company and then, you know, my board member, Angela Strange, kind of got famous for saying uh, every software company is going to become a fintech, you know, my argument was not every, you know, one of these software companies is going to want to learn payments. And so Move is designed to be a little bit opinionated to make it easy for people to integrate payments into their software stack. And if you look at the world of software of, of SaaS companies, you know, less than 8% of all SaaS companies have payments embedded inside of it. You know, that obviously they may do billing, billing somewhere segmented from that, but actually having the payment acceptance and, and integrated that into their platform. And I felt like you know, there's all these acronyms, there's all these pain points in order to figure out how to do this. And the world needed a company that, you know, abstracted that so that it could just be a feature uh, rather than like a department of a company. You take us back then, it looks like to August 2020 when the company was founded. What was it about this problem specifically that made you say, yep, that's it. I'm going to go build a company around that. Yeah. So oddly, it started as an open source project on my Wade Arnold GitHub account. And I had been a CEO of a company that was acquired. And, you know, when I left that company, I was much better at buy-side analyst meetings than I was at writing software. And uh, when I had started the company, I was very much a developer. So I, I knew this domain of payments and wanted to kind of utilize new tools. You know, VMware was cool before I had started this stuff. So, so just leveraging new technologies. And um, oddly, you know, hundreds of people started starting it and forking it and that was a little shocking to me was, uh, you know, how many Go developers want an ACH parser. And so just kind of followed that path. And I was, I was in a life position where I didn't have to work. So I, I got to work on this open source project for a year. And I think COVID had something to do with that, but that really led into reaching out to these contributors and figuring out nobody really had good access to low level payment protocols. A lot of that was written in COBOL or Fortran and running on an AS400 or Z-series mainframe. And nobody had kind of built this stuff for modern software development. And so that was the impetus was then going out and, and speaking with these people that had contributed back to open source and realizing they had exactly the same pain point that I had in building technology at Bilgo and, and at Bano previously. And so when I realized there was a lot more Wade Arnold's in the world that wanted to have a modern technology stack for payments, that that's what really led to the idea. 
And then who are some examples of companies who really want that modern payment stack? Yeah, so we build the software you know, for any back office type tool. So if you think about our customers are, whether that's like companies like Built Technologies, which is a construction management platform, they are the kind of vertically specific back office SaaS company that's running the business. And so their external competitor would be like a horizontal company, like a Zero or, or a maybe Intuit QuickBooks, something like that, to some extent. Square, you know, these are these back office tools. And so there's a lot of great companies out there that they want to be that primary interface for the business. So whether that's, you know, services for plumbers to construction workers to law offices to political donations, we service drastically different businesses, but they all kind of integrate it at the same level. Hmm. Super interesting. Can you give us an idea of the type of growth and adoption that you're seeing today? Yeah, it's been crazy. So we are a U.S. licensed acquiring processor, issuer processor, connected to the clearinghouse for real-time payments and the Federal Reserve for things like ACH. But it, you know, it took forty million dollars until you could say that's true. So it, it's really been a heads-down type endeavor to get to that spot where you're on Visa and Mastercard's website and and able to do that. So we went from zero. I, th- I think we did, uh, you know, $100,000 in total revenue last year and, and we're over 40 million in revenue this year. So it's been a pretty wild experience. And I, I can assure you, you know, everything that we thought was going to work nine months ago, we've had to redo some of those processes or redo some of the bottlenecks in our software in order to experience that growth. And, and uh, we think we're going to continue doing that for, for the next couple of years. You talked to us about that Series A you closed. So that was in what, December 2020? So not too long after founding the company. What, how'd you pull that off? And you landed uh, Andreessen Horowitz. So it makes sense for the, uh, the earlier part of our conversation. But how did you pull that off so early on in the journey? I think there was a big question. So, you know, Matt Harris at Bain Capital led our seed round. And the seed round is, it's great. This is an idea. I had personally put about a million dollars into the project beforehand. But there was still a question like, you know, there's a lot of fin in fintech, right? So it wasn't maybe a question whether or not we could build a new technology stack. There was a question whether or not, you know, all four card brands would allow us on the on their backbone of their network. So there's a lot of great companies, companies like Stripe or, or Braintree that are gateways and they sit on, on top of some of our competitors like First Data and WorldPay but they don't actually connect directly in, into the payment networks. And so that that was a big question of, can we convince everybody with A, no customers, no processing volume to let us onto the network? And and um, Visa, who's now an investor in our you know our series B was was the first to let us in. So we, we appreciate that partnership, but you know, you got Visa and then you got Discover and then you got MasterCard and then you got American Express and you had to kind of work through that system in order to get certified and on the network. And and I think that to me was the impetus for that Series A was really we've overcome maybe the bigger obstacle, which is just, are you allowed to play on the network or not? What was the lowest point you've had so far in, in building the company? The reason I ask is I'm, I'm sure you see it, but being a startup founder seems to be glamorized a lot and all the good stories get told, but often the, the real painful kind of dark moments, those don't ever seem to be talked about very much. So oh, yeah. you got any low moments? Uh, every day, um, <laughs> every other hour, we, I joke that it's just a roller coaster, you know, one minute, I think I'm going, you know, 
change the entire financial services landscape in the United States and be a billionaire and all the spoils that come along with industry changing companies. And, you know, an hour later, I'll probably think, why did I start this? And we're all going to go under, nothing's ever going to work. This was too audacious. But, you know, for me, I think the lowest point is we developed a go-to-market and sales team too early. The product wasn't mature enough. The product wasn't ready. And we had to hire, you know, customer success people and VP of revenue and just incredible humans. Uh, they did nothing wrong, but, you know, had them and, and that created a forcing function to realize the product wasn't mature enough to uh, deconvert from some of our, our large competitors that, you know, have been around since 1958. So they've, they've got a few more features than us. And then having to let that team go and realize we need to double down on engineering, not on go to market. And so that, that was a year ago, you know, that sucks, right? That's, I made the wrong decision that they did nothing wrong or they're great humans that, you know, wish I had most of them back today. But, you know, I think sometimes getting too excited too early before you have enough proof points to do the investment is, is the hardest part about uh, being a CEO. Yeah. I think any founder listening in can definitely relate there and has, has definitely experienced something very similar. What about your journey to find product market fit? What was that like? And, and what did you learn from that whole process? Yeah, you know, I think the hard thing about payments is that there's really not a business that doesn't do payments, if you think about it. And so, you know, it's good for a pitch deck. The TAM is like everybody, but that makes it really hard to figure out who you should be speaking with. And so, you know, if you think about Move started as this open source project, it was like, oh man, we're going to do, you know, a PLG motion and people hit the open source project and then they'll realize they don't want to make sure it goes through at 4 PM on Friday night. And so then they'll pay for it and yada, yada, yada. The reality is payments is a big decision. And so the CFO is involved, the CPO is involved, you know, a lot of times the founders involved because the company's reputation is at risk if, if this decision doesn't work. And so we really had to switch from there's obviously a sandbox and you can build a prototype and all those type of things, but it typically doesn't lead to an actual sale. Uh, that person can say no, but they usually can't say yes. So that process of figuring out who we should be speaking with and, and really led to more of a, a more traditional enterprise sales motion for going to market, you know, that was very painful. And then also realizing that, you know, it became really important to say no to people right away. So, you know, we had, we're a cloud-based payments processor, you know, we can process tens of thousands of transactions concurrently a second, you know, like the only company who can do that. So we went out and we talked to companies like Nike and Adidas and, and Supreme that did do, you know, unique product drops where a million people hit the buy button at the same time. And I actually think we're the only company in the world that can solve that problem, but we built our company we built our dashboard and we built a lot of our tooling for SaaS companies. And so you would go meet with these people and realize, yeah, they have that problem, but they don't take advantage of all the other things that we created that really allow a SaaS company to be successful, like onboarding. You know, if you, we have a customer that onboarded 60,000 small businesses, onboarding is really important for them. If you're selling to Nike, they onboard once. So that, that feature isn't very, very important. And so for us, it was like, you know, we had this big vision for what we wanted to build and obviously 
you know, had different features that we thought we could sell almost independently and bringing that back to staying very focused on, you know, vertical SaaS companies that, that serve an industry or serve a market uniquely and being able to allow them to, to integrate the platform so that, you know, those businesses could get money faster and they could reconcile data faster. That was really the value proposition. And anytime we veer away from that, I mean, we, we can accept an e-commerce checkout, but that doesn't mean we, we have the right to win those deals. And so that, that to me was the hardest part of having this unique platform was figuring out, you know, the right customers to go after that you can uniquely solve their problems. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What about your market category? It sounds like this is a, a category creation play, but I, I could be totally wrong there. So what is your market category? And do you view this as a, a new category that you're creating? Yeah, I think, you know, payments is old as time, right? Payments are the first thing computers were built for. So so in some way, you always get, you know, pointing back. And it's uh, moved to me as a, a new market category. There's nobody doing what we're doing, which can be good because you're defining a new category. And it's also bad because people will say things like, well, how do you compare to Stripe? And you're like, yes, they do payments as well. What's the question here? You know, we don't, we don't do global anonymous e-commerce checkout with WordPress plugins. You know, they, they uniquely service that customer, but our customers, you know, aren't using a, a shopping cart, right? They're the homeowners association as a service backend processor. And so they, they need a lot of different things that, that Stripe doesn't provide. And so I think being able to define a new category is extremely exciting as an entrepreneur, but it's extremely painful from a go-to-market strategy because you're not an incrementally, you know, better mousetrap. You're, you're a different category of, of offering. And sorry, what is the actual category term that you've, that you've come up with? Well, maybe we can come up with one on this podcast, but these, uh, you know, move as, as its simplest way, you know, explaining it to my kids, it's, it's like cash app or Venmo as a service that you can embed into your, your product offering to which my kids say, you know, why don't they just use Venmo? <laughs> but, uh, um, it really allows that whole kind of wallet infrastructure and acceptance and, and disbursements and, and spending off of that wallet, which is, a kind of a lightweight bank account for lack of a better term. From a marketing perspective, what have you gotten right? What have you done to really rise above the noise? Yeah, I, th I think that we chose to put all of our marketing into pleasing developers. So we we have a community of kind of surrounded by our open source projects of over 4,000 people in our Slack channel, which I didn't know there were that many humans that cared about low-level payments, but that's been exciting. We created a, a conference called FinTech DevCon, which is you know presented by Move, but there's no sales pitches. It's not an industry event. It's a developer event and people are sharing roadblock talks and how they've overcome challenges inside of the space. And so I think putting our brand as a, uh, you know, developer first company has been, been a key differentiator for us. Uh, you know, the majority of our leads come from those kind of investments that we're doing into giving first or sharing knowledge. And we think a 
a better educated buyer is going to choose to move over over some of our competition. So that's been really successful. I think it's uh, you know, it was super audacious to decide to you know run a five hundred person conference as a seed <laughs> seed startup company, but but we've really tried to you know link our brand to to pleasing developers and making it really easy to embed payments. How did you think about ROI for that conference? That's something that I've talked to a lot of founders about and, and everyone wants to do it. Then as soon as you start actually looking into the numbers, things get expensive. It adds up. The costs really start to add up. And then, of course, the question comes up, okay, how are we going to get an ROI from this? So how did you think about measuring ROI or was it 100% focused on just adding value and you had this belief that if you added value that the ROI would come eventually? Yeah, I think year one, it was just a belief that not only was there a need in the marketplace for move as a, a commercial entity, there was a, that same need was being powered by a lack of education in the marketplace. So like kind of the old guard, it's, you know, Hey, payments are hard, you know, pay me a hundred thousand dollars and I'll give you some soap docs, but let's make this deal at Ruth Chris. And, and, uh, then we can tell the second class citizens, the developers what to do. And that's our primary competition still today, kind of the, the old IBM mindset, you know, pre red hat type mindset of IBM. And so what we wanted to do was kind of be a beacon for, you know, leading with education and, and, and leading with, you know, this payments isn't any harder than configuring Kubernetes, right? I mean, that's hard stuff as well. So if you can get knowledge in the hands of developers, then, then we wanted our brand associated with that. And, and we felt like in, in payments, it's a very noisy marketplace. You know, there's probably 10,000 companies that say they're a payments processor. That's a, you know, lowercase P they process payments. There's only like seven of us in, in the country that actually can put, you know, capital P processor. We, we put the message over a socket onto VisaNet or a bank net from MasterCard. So how do you differentiate? How do you separate the fact that it's your software move and Visa versus your software, you know, a reseller, a gateway, uh, you know, legacy incumbent, a CSV file, and then Visa. And for us, it was educating the market so that they, they could make a better decision. And, and that was, you know, it started as an audacious goal and, uh, but has really proven to, to allow the move brand, you know, we're three years old, 110 people, very small company, but, but people know the brand and put it up there with, I think, iconic fintech companies like, like Stripe and Plat and, and, uh, as great developer focused organizations. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 77 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? It never gets easier. Um, <laughs> I think what's really hard about infrastructure companies, are, these are really hard problems and the incumbents have very large moats. And for me, you know, you can't ask somebody to switch off of a legacy incumbent if 20% of their transactions go through Apple Pay and you're not listed on Apple's website, right? It's just, you know, that's not the lean startup. That's not agile. That is just take the documentation, spend $2 million and be on Apple's website and get it done. And so we've had to find investors that believe in the vision that maybe this cloud thing and the internet thing's going to catch on and payments, the TAM of payments is going to be much bigger than what it is today. It's, it's not going to be, you know, growing with GDP, but it, 
it could be twice as big because we allow more developers to embed payments into their software. And and being able to articulate that message to an audience that doesn't always know that, you know, ins and outs of how payments works, that's been really hard. And uh, especially if you come at it, kind of that lean startup mentality, like, oh, we're going to fail fast and pivot and, you know, yada, 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 like, nope, we're going slug it out and we're going to build all these features and it's going to cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars in order to get a minimum viable product for lack of a better word into the market. And then it's going to continue costing, you know, hundreds of millions over the decade to come in order to get all the things built. And so if the VC believes that, Hey, this is the right team, this is the right vision to go take on that, that slug of a grind then they're probably on our cap table. And if they think, oh, this is incrementally different than than something else that's out there in the marketplace, then then they've usually passed on the opportunity. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Oh man, that's so good. I think I'd hire 50 engineers and not even build a website, put our heads down for three years and then come up and say, it's ready, which is somewhat the antithesis of like every startup book you've ever read. But I think if you wanted to go build a, you know, something in education or insurance or healthcare, or, you know, government, these are industries that have incumbents that have large moats and, and large feature sets. And I think that you have to have enough of those features for somebody to switch off which takes a long time. And, you know, the rest of it can be a little bit distracting. And obviously the most precious resource is your time and being able to kind of get further along before we started, you know, interacting with prospective customers is, is probably worthwhile. And, and, you know, I knew that three years ago, but everything inside of you, including, you know, your advisors and board members says, oh, you, you need to be talking to people. You need to be doing this, which I agree with, but maybe not as much as we did. Final question for you. Let's zoom yep. out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Yeah. So for us, I, you know, I think we can be the market leader for software development companies, SaaS companies to, to embed uh, US-based payments inside of it. That's going to take us a while in order to accomplish that vision. And then we're already from existing customers getting the pull like, hey, by the way, 9% of our revenue comes from Canada. We don't want to you know, go find the move of Canada or the move of the EU, you know, what's your roadmap there? And and it, I think the software world doesn't, you know, a financial services definitely knows state and federal boundaries. Uh, SaaS companies do not. And so over time, we'll, we'll need to expand the the same offering, but but have the risk and the compliance and, and the licenses and other markets so that, uh, again, you know, people want to move money. They they don't want to learn payments. Amazing. Wade, I, I love the vision. And I, I love everything you're doing. And I, I really have loved this conversation. And I know it's going to be a hit with our audience. Before we wrap up here, if there's anyone that's listening in and they just want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? Yeah. So, you know, we're pretty active on LinkedIn. So just follow Move on, on LinkedIn. You know, if you want to see my frustrations and rants of, of being a founder, you know, my, you know, I'm at Wade Arnold on, on Twitter or I guess X and uh, my most recent tweet is of being pissed off about our documentation being hard to follow. And, and that's 
just the role of the founders. Our job is to dig deep into to every piece of what we build and and make sure it's at the bar that that is high enough for us to be proud of. Amazing. I love it. Wade, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 